0: Hey everyone, Eric here. Just before we get to today's show, I want to let you know that we're offering our podcast listeners a special 20% lifetime discount to the China Africa Daily Brief. Now, that's the newsletter that Cobus and I produce every day that provides the most comprehensive digest of everything China's doing on the continent and now increasingly throughout the global south. In addition to the newsletter, you'll also get full archive access to the website and the China Africa Experts Network as well. To get that discount, just go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe and use the promo code podcast at checkout. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe.
1: The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com.
0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. A proud member of the Seneca Network from Sub I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, holy moly, the big story of the day is actually the big story of the week, the month The summer has been the China-DRC relationship, not even close. This is by far the most important geopolitical relationship that China has in Africa today. So much is happening there so fast. It's interesting because our newsletter and the content on our website for the past few weeks has been almost 50% China-DRC. And the feedback that I'm getting from folks is, give me more, give me more, <laughs> give me more. And I, so, and we do have to balance it out with other stories that we're covering, but there's just so much that's been unfolding. And a lot has happened over the past week, and that's what we're going to talk about today. I think before we get too deep into it, I want to take everybody back to middle May, early June, when this all began and this is when Congolese president Felix Chesikedi went out to Kaolezi in a very famous trip now it's it's an infamous trip now and he went out to Sikomines and it was very interesting because what he did at the Sino-Congolese joint venture mining is he told them right to their face i mean and i mean literally to their face that this is not going to stand that the contracts and the relationship over the mines has to be reevaluated and rethought. Now, it's very important to mention, as we're going to talk about the Sino-Congolese mining contracts here, that the Congolese government itself, and President Chesikati in particular, has not singled out the Chinese specifically. They're saying foreign mining contracts. But when we're talking about foreign mining contracts in the DRC, that invariably leads to the Chinese doorstep because 60% of the foreign mines in the DRC are Chinese and many of them are some of the largest in the world. And the two contracts that the Congolese have gone after, the first for review, one is Mines, which is the $9 billion Sino-Congolese mining deal that was then downgraded to a $6 billion deal and also the China-Mali deal in the TFM mine. So these are two big of they went right with the big ones but let's go back to that visit to Kaolizi in the mining belts that's the copper and cobalt belts in the eastern and southern zones of the DRC and let me play you a soundbite from this conversation it's it's in, in French. French Let me just paint the picture for you What's happening here This is the big man himself Félix Chesiquetti Standing over the director general Of Means, Li Shang And he's standing face to face Surrounded by dozens of people And he's telling Li That along the roads to the mines There were no schools None of the development That you promised is here And he goes on to say We want a partnership with you but you have to understand that the village down there that I passed by was totally deserted. There was nothing there. And this is, I'm translating the quote here. So we have to build things. And that's the partnership we want so you prosper and we prosper. This is what Chessicati is telling Lee. But we don't want to see the day where this relationship ends and we were left, with his word, with cadavers. Very interesting choice of words there. Now, since that, that interaction back in May and June, late May, early June, it has just taken off all summer, leading up into the fall now, with a series of horrific videos that have been coming out, really illustrating the difficulties that the Chinese have had in the Congo relating to horrific violence of their managers, of, of the mining companies like China Mali, Uh, at the TFM mine towards their local employees, uh, environmental abuses by Chinese mining companies, and also just one negative media coverage after another. But it appears just this past week or so that Chinese mining companies, together with the Chinese Foreign Ministry in Beijing and the embassy in Kinshasa, all appear now to be pushing back and putting out an alternative narrative. So let me just run you through a few of the things that have happened in just the past week. And this is how the story has changed and where we're going to pick up the conversation today. Let's start with this news site, Actualite.cd, which is one of the large Congolese news sites. They are they're really one of the leading news sites. They are now flush with details about Chinese mining activities. And this is a little bit of a surprise because anybody who knows Chinese companies, especially state-owned mining companies, knows full well that these companies have been very, very opaque, very secretive. They don't like to reveal details. But over the past week, now, suddenly, there is just details about their financial activities all over the press. So they ran a story over the weekend about how the TFM mine, which, again, is owned by China Mali, that's a cobalt and copper mine, uh, paid $3.6 billion in taxes since 2006. Uh, interestingly, though, Actualité uh, Boin CD did not say how they came about that information. Then they ran a story last Wednesday headlined, and you'll like this The Chinese company Zhuoxi Mining is abiding by the DRC mining code for the benefit of the community. The story goes on to say how the company's donated 0.3% of its revenue to local development initiatives. Hmm, okay, that's interesting. Now, on the same day that that story ran in C D, the Zhuashir Mining Company also permitted a pro-Kabila social media influencer who published videos from the mine and said, and I'm going to quote here from his tweet, "'Yesterday I visited the Zhuashir Mining Company in Lumabashi. Contrary to claims made by foreign journalists about Chinese-owned mining companies, Zhuashir uh, Mining paid $17 million in taxes for the year 2020.' He then went on to detail how the company spent $24 million building schools, hospitals, and training centers for the local community. Again, it's just interesting that in one week, all of these details have blossomed. But wait, there's more. And just before all of this transparency unfolded online and in the media, Congolese mining minister Antoinette Nsamba Kalambayi went out to do site inspections of a number of different mines, including big Chinese mining companies in the copper and cobalt zones, both in the east and the south of the country. She visited some of the largest mines who fetted her on Facebook and Twitter. I mean, really, they just, it was fun to watch. We put a couple of those images in the newsletter. The two that I was able to track that she went to was the large Comus mine, which is owned by the Chinese mining giant Zijin, and then also the Lualaba Copper Smelting Company, which is also owned by the Chinese mining giant, China Non-Ferris Mining Corporation. Now on the China Non-Ferris Mining Corporation corporate website in Hong Kong, they touted the visit and included a quote from the minister that said, and I'm quoting here from their, their take on this, I feel very satisfied and assured that employees work here, exclamation point. One other very important point, It appears that the Chinese government is also getting its talking points in order. So what we talked about were the mining companies. But last Monday, that's on the 13th of September, Chinese foreign ministry spokesman Zhao Lijian, he held a press briefing, and he was asked a question about the DRC mining situation by a journalist at AFP. And he opened his response with this phrase, and it's very important. The infrastructure for minerals package cooperation between China and the DRC is a model of practical cooperation between the two countries. Now, when I first heard that, I thought, eh, okay, that's a pretty unremarkable piece of Chinese public diplomacy or propaganda or whatever you want to call it. I didn't really think too much of it. Then, interestingly, over the weekend, China's top diplomat for sub-Saharan Africa, Wupeng, he tweeted out a tweet about a new hydroelectric dam, and in it he said, under the infrastructure for minerals package cooperation between China and the DRC. And all of a sudden, the light bulb went off. This is the talking point that they're rallying around. We see this time and time and time again. What the Chinese do is they, oftentimes when they're under pressure, they pull back, they wait, they figure out their talking point. Once they've got their talking point, they just hit it hard over and over and over again. The last time we saw this in the African context was during the Guangzhou discrimination issues back in April 2020. And that is when, again, for two or three days after the, the situation broke out, you didn't hear anything from the Chinese. And then you heard their their established line, there is no discrimination in China. The Chinese treat everybody the same. That was the stock answer. I suspect this is going to be the stock answer in the DRC crisis that they're facing right now. Kobus. The point here is that after months and months and months of the Chinese largely being quiet on the issue, the messaging strategy now appears to be taking shape, and I suspect that we should look to see the Chinese push back very hard now.
2: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, it's, you know, as you lay it out and you lay out the, the, the kind of evolution of, of this messaging, it's, you know, kind of, you can really kind of see it coming together. Um, and, you know, it, it, it proves a few kind of other things as well. One being that, um, that, you know, kind of this the thing that, that we've been saying for years that, that if, that if the Chinese, be it the Chinese government or Chinese companies get heat, from african populations and particularly from african governments and regulators then they respond you know it's it's the times when they don't get any heat that that all kinds of all kinds of shenanigans happen behind the scenes um it's also um you know i, th- I think it's it's they, they they they're facing a challenging situation because on the one hand i think they they're really kind of like like facing some of the really kind of core negative narratives about the chinese in africa you know that they're exploitative that they don't that they don't give a hoot about about any kind of like local local inputs, that they corrupt, that they that they tend to corrupt other governments, that they you know all of all of these kind of like very negative narratives about them. They're all coming together, and in, in in this particular one, what is it's also is very interesting is that. This is a real testing case for the for the infrastructure for resources, you know, kind of deal as a as a model and also you know kind of as a narrative, because we've seen little infrastructure coming out of these out of these resource deals, um and you know, and and, and I think from now on as as the heat increases, I think we'll hopefully also see a lot kind of more critical kind of focus on Chinese infrastructure, not only in terms of are the roads falling apart during the rainy season, those kind of you kind of older narratives, but also so it's very easy to slap together three prefab buildings and call it a school or call it a clinic or a training center right like did they actually employ any teachers are they actually supporting any kind of any kind of initiative or any kind of activity happening within those buildings Those are all really interesting questions. Now, whether they will actually be answered is a different question because it's the DRC, you know?
0: Yeah, and that last point that you made, it's the DRC. And that's what makes this especially confusing because observing these types of details from afar is, and as I wrote in today's column it's a fool's errand you cannot understand what's going on looking from the outside in let's get an insider's perspective our, our, our good friend Christian giroron Nima Biamongo is a Congolese mining analyst. He's worked in the mining sector in the DRCs, also a graduate of Zheming University in Beijing. And he's been following the unfolding developments between the Chinese and Congolese more closely than anybody else that I know. And so when I wanted to try and figure out what the hell is going on here, I thought Christian is the guy we're going to call to help. Christian, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Cobis, for having me back. Okay. Let me just start with
0: what the hell is going on
3: ha. what the hell is going on it's the big question now it's about to understand what's happening in the mining industry right now with the older revisitation process in 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 ongoing in the congo it's really difficult to read exactly what's going on we've seen so many things unfolding the last past few weeks the chinese the chinese communication operation uh Contrary, coming back onto the narrative that was being painting, that has been painting them as negative actors, negative partners in the mining industry. They're coming, they're coming back strong with more talking points, with more elements showing what they've been doing on the ground. So it's really interesting. We also see how on the Twitter we saw how and uh, Ch- uh, polit- uh, Chinese diplomats going on a spot with the form of Trump administrations uh, on the over, uh, over Chinese investment in DRC. But so far, interestingly enough we haven't heard about the congolese side yet from the congolese side since the revision process the revision commission has been put in place we haven't heard about them from the government except the uh, mining ministry but from on the higher level in terms of uh, the revision process we didn't hear about the prime minister so so from now it's really hard to say what's really going on so from now we just see that there is back and forth between china and the u.s between china and americans and the civil society in congo between people pushing the narrative either for china or either against china but in the overall picture we still have many things to, to to know about before knowing exactly what's what's going on on the ground
2: what kind of reaction has all of this gotten from, from Congolese social media like can, can you get a kind of an indication I know you're not, not in the country at the moment but can you get an, an indication of what the kind of temperature is of the popular discussion of these issues
3: so so far we have um we have I would say we have three camps we have we have the f- a minority camp of like those who've been support of the um, President Kabila, those have been pushing that the Chinese are totally positive. They have been having positive impact in the Congo. The investment has been huge. They've done many things in Congo. They've come to Congo when nobody was was ready to come. They invested a lot of money. So they've been doing a lot of things in Congo. On the other side, we have those who are supporting the President chisekedi right now. I say, yes, we have to, re- we have really to revisit those contracts. We have to see what's going on. I've been really... I've have they've been fulfilling their their duty their commitment to those to Congo have been building have, have they been building schools roads and every infrastructure we haven't seen them yet and plus we have to take into account that last month we had this coverage after the visits of the uh, f- fake and uh, the Congolese part, uh, uh, patron industry when they've been visiting east part of Congo in south Kiv they've been visiting a uh, shining Chinese, Chinese uh, small mining industry the coverage was a very bad negative coverage about China so people really been surfing on that how China is bad but you also have a much more neutral approach where people say this part between China and the US is something just over how both superpowers are trying to loot Congo, there's no Congolese interest about that and that's part of the people from social media they say we'd like to hear more about the Congolese perspective but that element like since we see much more of the US push between behind this uh, revisitation process people again are getting more worried that at the end we are just we are just this revision process is more about choosing side than really fixing deeper issue and finding solution about the mining industry in congo
0: well i want to get to the u.s role shortly but first let's talk about the point that you mentioned in terms of the small scale artisanal miners and this was an issue that broke out on august 20th when the governor of South Kivu province, and that's in the far east of the Congo, he banned nine companies altogether, six of which were Chinese companies. Now, these companies were were banned from operating. They were told to shut down, and apparently not all of them did shut down. And then just last week, there was a riot in the small town of Kitutu in South Kivu, where villagers from about seven or eight different villages all mobilized together to burn tires, block the roads leading into one of these mines. And the police came out, used uh, tear gas to break up the the riots, but it got a lot of attention. Interestingly enough, the next day, Wu Peng, again, the diplomat who's the the top Chinese diplomat for Sub-Saharan Africa, he tweets out something that in 12 years of me covering China-Africa issues, I have never seen. And he tweets out that an investigation has been completed and these mining companies will be punished and prosecuted in China for their their, their, their crimes. We don't know what they were. We don't know what the, the prosecution will be or what the charges will be. But that is something that we have never seen before. So again, a very important development there. But Christian, help us understand the difference between the big Chinese mines like China Mali, the Zijin Mining Company, the Shi Mining Company, and then these artisanal illegal mines, because a lot of people are putting them together, and they're actually quite different.
3: Exactly, they're really quite different when it comes about the Chinese mining investment in Congo. You have big, you have two sides of the Chinese mining investment in Congo. You have those big investment that we have in Katanga region. When you have TFM China Mali, we have Zijin Mining, we have Rashi, we have all those big investment. That's those investments are in the line with the, with Beijing strategy overall strategy in the DRC. They are really into DRC to for the from a, from a state perspective, not from a private perspective, but those small miners and small mining operations in the, in the east of Congo, but they're not only in the east of Congo. You can also find them in the centre of Congo and different parts of Congo too. Those people are much more related to private investment mining. And when you go down there, you're going to notice that they don't they don't work alone. They always work in partnership with some private Congolese businessmen or officials or military officials or pri- just private in- investments. So, from my experience on the ground, what what, what can we learn? When you go on the ground, you're going to notice that most of the Chinese are coming as a part of a deal between a Congolese investors and the manufacturer where they bought the dredges to do the operation. They're going to send them workers. They're going to send them people to do the operation to maintain, to do the maintenance on those, on those operations on the ground. So that's why when you go there, you're going to meet lots of, a lot of Chinese. And most of them, they have nothing to do with Beijing over a strategy in the country. So that's why when Wupang re- reacted to them, it was like we we are not going to let our chi- our overall strategy being tarnished by small private entities in the business in the congo the, the, Since they are not really connected to us, that's why Wupeng was not hesitant enough to say, "Okay, we're going to get rid of them. We don't feel they don't They don't follow. They don't abide by the Congolese law. So those people need to go. So, yeah, we have to make that distinction. But unfortunately, when we that's when when we see those kind of image, people tend to mix them all together. Yeah, it's Chinese Chinese, yes, but Chinese in the small part of Walikali has nothing to do with uh, with Zijin mining in Koloizi or, or China Molly in taking Fungurume. So, those are two different things that people need to keep in mind when they analyze Chinese investment in Congo. Even among big Chinese investment, we also make there are some differences that we need to make um, according to the revision process.
2: So if we leave a if we leave aside the the small scale mining for the moment, um, and we look at, at the, the very large Chinese mining concerns, do you have uh, is is there a kind of clear indication that are they actually environmentally and socially worse than their, their kind of non-Chinese counterparts? If you know the the kind of massive other European and other kind of mining companies that also work in the Congo. Is there a kind of a is, is there a, a real kind of contrast between how those companies act environmentally and socially? compared to how the chinese massive companies act.
3: And that's the problem. They're not really big there's there's not really big of a difference between what the chinese do and what the european used to do in Congo. It's pretty much the same, but the the problem with the chinese the media coverage. Chinese have been really under scrutiny when they came to invest in Congo. They came with they they came through the big door with nine billion dollar deal. When you come in the country like in 2008, you come in, a, in in a country like Congo with that much of money, of course you're going to attract attention, of course you're going to attract people who like to know what are you really doing, what's really happening there, and since you're the newcomer, what you're really doing. And of course, when you have the media coverage, western media coverage, even local media coverage, it's not helping. And of course, when you add into the mix that in terms of practices, uh, in terms of management, there are, you have so many incidents in Involving uh, involving Chinese management and local workers, that coverage we only see those image. We only see now those image now. That, that, but it's been happening for years and years. Only recently now people are now filming them, sharing them on social media. But in terms of who's doing worse, who's doing better, I it's 50/50. It's pretty much the same situation. They're doing 50/50 because the business environment in Congo and the work, the labor laws in Congo are so murky. Where like when you have big investment, you can pretty much go with everything that
0: you want. Kobus, that's interesting because that is a very similar theme that we hear in the debt discussion as well. When we talked to Bradley Parks at AidData, he basically said that European and American loan contracts are equally as opaque and equally secretive as the Chinese contracts. So there's, it's interesting that we he, we see these parallels over and over again. Happening that the Chinese and the non Chinese actors are the same, but the Chinese do get more scrutiny. Do you, do you see that same parallel, Kobus?
2: Yes, yes, I do, and and I think I think also an, another complicating factor there, or, or like an, an additional factor, is the fact that that the the the, the overlap between this between the state and and the big company in in the Chinese case is so close. You know, a lot of these are state-owned companies. A lot of them have China in the name, um, so it becomes a lot easier to kind of slap this on. You know, to 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 to, to kind of to accuse the the chinese of of things that a lot of people are doing you know kind of in which the in which the chinese case becomes an easy kind of like stand in for the experience of of local populations with with big foreign companies the the difference then becomes that that many of the non-chinese companies are transnational kind of neo, neoliberal institutions you know they're kind of like like contemporary kind of massive transnational co- corporations they don't really have a home they don't really have a they, they, they can't be seen as being american or british even if that was well, where they were where they originated you know so it, it becomes much harder also legally to kind of go after them or to or to or to shame them whereas with with the Chinese, you know, like if, if like as we've seen, you know, kind of if you, if you put if you paint a target on a big Chinese company and you and you kind of shoot enough arrows at it, then at some stage you also get some kind of response
0: from the embassy. Yeah. So, Christian, one of the other points of escalation in the past couple of weeks was a very provocative documentary that came out by Cameroonian journalist Anna Foucault. And it is, it is amazing. And we, again, we, we showcased it on our site. If you need it, you can go to, go to our website, look for it. It's on YouTube. There's English subtitles for it. And uh, Fuka went out to South Kivu. And, 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 and he was greeted when his plane landed with FARDC forces and also uh, undercover security of some kind. We don't quite know who it is. And basically, they said, you're not going to the Chinese mines. And this provoked him in the documentary, which is, by the way, entitled End the Slave Trade in Africa. And that is a reference, by the way, to the Chinese. And he says there are Chinese territories in the DRC that are controlled by Chinese entities. And it, again, and this really got people excited, in so much so that Chinese ambassador to Kinshasa Zhu Jing responded to it on Twitter and denounced the documentary as well. But it brings up the sensitive role of the FARDC, which is the armed forces of the Congo, of the De- Democratic Republic of the Congo. Talk to us about the controversy, Christian, involving those, the, the, the force protection that these Chinese minds are getting and the role that that's playing on social media. Exactly. So
3: the problem with um, with the armed force in DRC, as I w- as as I was saying be- earlier, is the fact that many of those Chinese businessmen, when they come, they come under the cover the cover of many powerful people within the army or politicians. When you go on the east part of Congo, you go south Kivu, you go on Walikale region, you go on Ituri region, you're gonna see many many Chinese small mining operation dealing for frdc officials those people are really powerful those people most of them they are people they're generals official from those regions so they have their own people guarding those chinese giving them security guaranteeing them they're going to be safe when they do business there so when you go there you can come with your official with your with your official role with your official entitlement you go there you say okay we i want to visit there but they're not going to let you and those military are really they can be really ready to shoot you on sight because they no, here it's a military zone. It's a, because, of course, but when you see the Chinese, you're gonna say no, Chinese are creating private private areas in Congo, they're controlling, they're, they're, cre- they're creating private region for them to control, but they don't walk alone. Because when you look at those operations, you're gonna find 15, 20 Chinese, they all have visa. They, they may have, they may lack a, a walking permit, they may lack the proper paperwork, but they all have, most of them all have like proper visa when they came in. So the question is, how they get into the country they get to the country through powerful people those powerful people most of them are untouchable because they can be really they can be connected to um, they can be connected to um rebel uh, armed, uh, armed rebels in, in the drc they can be connected connected to political leaders who they sell, they exchange their political support to the regime or to different people based on the fact that you let them do business in the you, you, you let them do business in the region. So when they do business in the region, they say we're not disturbing anybody, we're doing our business, so people can should not be coming here to disturb us when you do business with our Chinese people. So that's pretty much the situation when it comes to those small those small private entities in there, and that's how it raised the controversy because when you go there, you feel you have that feeling that I'm a different country here you can come with all the all the all the paperwork but they say no you're not going you're not going to come in you're not going to come in here you're not going to come in here so yeah that's the kind of situation that we meet in the years in the east part of Congo. but yes but the documentary also talk about other mining and the mi- other mining operation but we may talk about it later now
2: um as eric mentioned we also so we saw a lot of kind of back and forth between chinese and american diplomats um on the congo and its it's you know there's been, hey, Cobus, there's been Cobus,
0: let me let me stop you there just to be clear here uh, peter fam is a former diplomat, former diplomat so we've yeah. not seen any <laughs> current diplomats he's a former Trump administration official the special envoy to the Sahel so I just want to make that clear that it's not a current diplomat
2: yes thanks for that for that clarification um it's and and we've also seen we've seen a lot of rumors that there might be American you know kind of you know kind of whispers in people's ears in in terms of this that, that, that might have contributed to this pressure that we're currently seeing from the DRC government on on China or Chinese entities then um can you talk about that a Little bit like how, how, what do you, what have you heard about possible American influence and, and w- what do you kind of make of the situation?
3: Okay, this, the story first time broke out on African intelligence when they say they do believe that uh, they have element uh, uh, showing that American uh, behind uh, President Chisekedi will to revisit those Chinese contracts. And unfortunately, we've been seeing Peter Pham that uh, Eric mentioned, we've seen him every time there is. Uh, news, official news about Chinese contract being revised, being uh, changed, being monitored, is among is the first one to retweet and to make comments to show support. How come the US is supporting it? And that's why really we have to be we have really to tread carefully here. We have to make we have to really to be attention because Peter Farm doesn't have doesn't hold an official position right now although he held a position as a special envoy into the in into the Great Lake region and f- later on as a special envoy in the Cell region. But right now, he doesn't hold any specific official position in the U.S. administration. But based on his past and interest in Congo, when he's speaking, when he's tweeting, when he's expressing his point of view, people tend to say the United States are behind uh, what's happening in the DRC with this Chinese mining contract. They're behind... The they're the, they're pushing for the change in the Chinese and uh, ch- Chinese investment in DRC. That's why we need to trade carefully. We need to know who are we talking about here. When we say when we say when we see a dip, uh, a former diplomat like Peter uh, Peter Farm speaking, are we is he uh, is he speaking for the uh, State Department? Is he speaking on his own uh, for, or, 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 on his own point of view? Or is, is he speaking about what? Who is who's he speaking for? Because when we see on the other side, Jing, Ambassador Jujing speaking or uh, Wupong speaking, we know it's the Chinese administration who's speaking. But in the case of Peter Pham, we don't know. The American ambassador in Kinshasa, Mike Hammer, did not, did not speak about it. So we cannot really say Americans. Yes, we can. It's possible that we have American interest behind pushing for those contracts to be revisited. We can have Western interests behind really pushing to see things going in a certain direction. But we have to tread carefully when you talk about the U.S. Because when we when it comes to U.S. foreign policy, we have so many actors coming out and uh, really playing uh, in the background that we have to be careful. Because we can we can be dealing with the American lobby here without really dealing with the American administration itself. Knowing that the U.S. DRC is not always in the top of uh, in the top of the U.S. foreign policy strategy, so we have to really be careful about that.
0: I am so glad you are asking for that kind of caution because in all of the reporting that alleges U.S. involvement, that that the embassy in Kinshasa, the U.S. Embassy in Kinshasa is whispering into Chessikady's ear to renegotiate these loan contracts. And even the Chinese official tweets on this matter have alluded to this. There has been no evidence of any kind. I'm not suggesting that it isn't happening. It's absolutely possible that it's happening. We just haven't seen any evidence. And even the African intelligence story that you referenced just says that it's happening, but doesn't show. Again, we don't know who is saying this and we've never heard any of this. And so I think your caution is really well-deserved. Now, a couple other points here that the U.S. might be involved in. So earlier this year, the IMF uh, put as one of its conditions for a $1.5 billion credit line for the DR Congo to restructure some of these contracts that may be how the United States is also exerting its influence in this process. So if Chessicati wants to get that new IMF credit line, he has to do something about the Chinese contract. So that might be one thing as well. Peter FAM, to be sure, does not speak on behalf of the administration. He is a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council, and as far as we know, that's all he does. But it is very interesting, and I highly recommend that you all follow the exchanges between Zhu Jing, the ambassador from China, and Peter Pham. I personally think that Ambassador Zhu is making a tactical mistake in responding to Pham because, in many ways, Pham is a provocateur towards the Chinese. So you're never going to win an argument with Peter Pham about the Chinese. So, why would Zhu Jing? Actually engage him. My guess is that Jew doesn't actually know who Peter Fom is that much, and so he's just he sees the American flags and he sees that he used to be in the the government. So he responds to him. But it's exactly. a, a, a just a really dumb move for Ambassador Drew to engage Peter Pham because it, Peter's always going to get the upper hand on it. And he's just, and, and Peter's also, what you're going to see in his tweets, is he's conflating a lot of the artisanal mining with the big institutional mining that, Christian, you pointed out, need to be separated in our evaluation on this. Christian, one of the issues that you and I have been talking about almost on a daily basis as we go back and forth on these issues is on the timing of this. And this is something that I brought up again today in, in the newsletter, which is why is Chesicady doing this now? These contracts have been in place for 15 years. A lot of us have known that these contracts are bunk, that they're not fair, but yet they're going after them now. Let me put a couple different ideas in front of you as to why Chesicady might be doing this, and maybe some, all, or none are applicable here. So number one, As you've pointed out, the price of cobalt is going up. The forecast for the use of cobalt is just a straight hockey stick up because electric vehicles are going to need cobalt. At this point right now, there is no alternative that has the power of cobalt. There are lithium-ion batteries and other batteries that they are looking at, but they either... Uh, have a problem of burning up, which is a small problem, or they don't have the power and the durability of cobalt. So for now, cobalt's going up. So for at least the next 10 years, the demand for cobalt is going to go up. And you've pointed out that Chessicati wants to restructure the pricing now because he wants to get more of the upside when that price increases. That's one possibility. Possibility number two is, as I pointed out, there is a rapid, rapid research and development process going on right now to find an alternative for cobalt. That uh, There's a company called S-Vault uh, in China that is now introducing cobalt-free batteries. Also, there is BYD, which is Build Your Dreams. They have launched the new Blade battery, which is possibly going to go into Tesla's Model 3s in China. That's a cobalt-free battery. And there are people out there who envision a cobalt-free future. So. Jessica Cady says, if I don't get this now, in 10 years, it may be too late. And the last point that I'd like to bring up is well, he's got an election campaign next year, 2023, actually in two 18 months, sorry, 2023. And nothing helps an election campaign more than cash and infrastructure. So maybe he's doing this. The last point that I want to bring up, and I was on a, I did an interview with the BBC last week, and the host of the BBC, she put out there, well, maybe he's doing it to help his people and to meaningfully help the people and to get more money out of the Chinese to build the infrastructure for his people. And I retorted to her on, on air that no Congolese leader has done that in the past half century. Chesicady himself has not proven himself to be that kind of leader. He's too early in his administration. So at this point, we cannot assume that he's doing this for the benevolence of his people. Of those four reasons, what do you think are some combination of the timing for why they're doing this now.
3: Yes, the timing is really interesting. The timing has to take has, has to take into account different factors on international level and on the local level. You mentioned on international level, we have the case of the, uh, the cobalt price skyrocketing. It's projected to go sky high in the next five, 10 years. The market are predicting that going to be a shortage of cobalt because the demand will be so high. So we are expecting the price to go much higher than it is right now. So in that context, it's a something. It's a move that we've been seeing in many producing countries around the world. When price, when commodities price go high, producing countries tend to go back to mining and say, hey, "We're gonna. Re- we want to renegotiate the deal that we have on the table because now things are getting better and we need much more money." In many, in many cases. Many mining companies they have the choice either they fight, either they compromise. In the case of Congo, Chinese they don't have much of options because you have Congo, Congo is 65% of cobalt produced uh, produce in the world, is way, way ahead of many countries. They really cannot be balanced again any they can be really can be balanced against any producer. On that level, we know that President Chisekede as a upper hand is can really push hard for that on the international level. And the second element to mention is also interesting because we've been hearing uh, uh, Elon Musk saying that Tesla has been saying that we cannot keep on depending on a country like Congo for, um, for 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 our batteries. It's an unstable country. Cannot be depending both on Congo and both on China in the same time. We have to be able to find alternatives. So that way we we have seen research and development going on not only in China but all over the US to try to find alternative solution to the cobalt. And of course. Little by little, they're getting there, but it's still so too far from them to be able to say, okay, we can get rid of Kong. And we also see China, that China is expecting to increase... Uh, um electrical vehicle in its public transportation in the, in by 2000, uh, 2025 and, 20, and 2030 so we know and we are expecting china to to want more cobalt now and plus china we've been seeing that china has been ex, uh, import uh, importing a lot of cobalt to make reserve because it's is pretty it's, it's getting ready for what's going to come in the next coming years that's from an in international level perspective but from the local level in the very national level el- element that you mentioned it's also true because you have 2023 elections is coming, they're going to be in need of money. They're going to need a they need, need of infrastructure. Who's better than China when it comes to building quick, to providing money to, you know, to boost your campaign, to boost your election? Nobody beats them. So on that perspective, we can, see the, we can see the possibility that there is a need of like, hey, guys, I need much. I need, I, I need more from me because election needs to come and she, it, it needs to show something. And don't forget, we're also mentioning the fact that we are talking about the Katanga region. And Katanga region has is, is been the region from the former president President Kabila. So when is pushing, pushing for infrastructure being built in Katanga? Because those infrastructure are not going to be built outside. Uh, they will not start outside Katanga. They will start in Katanga region. So when he's pushing there, when he's pushing for infrastructure there, he's also making for himself a very solid campaign element argument for the, for the Katanga people for people from Katanga to say, hey, you know, me. I'm from another region. I've, I've pushed Chinese to build school in your, in, in your region, uh, to build infrastructure and everything. And from that 2023 perspective, it is also cutting grass. Um, uh, it's cutting grass at the foot of Mois Katumbi, who's also from Katanga, who's expected maybe to be candidate in 2023 so there are there are those elements that all come into play to say hey we need really to push for that to happen and those are the elements that we cannot uh, lose in sight of so when we analyze the situation let's keep the international and the local interaction politics coming together to know what's going on and the last element I'm going to mention because I mentioned it in my in my blog a few weeks ago it's one it's one thing to have the american card in your hand it's another thing to really go and push with that because there's been a talk recently in the Congolese politics that there might be a need of postponing election there might be a need of a political dialogue to come before 2023 to post the election if that happened chisekid will need more of a western support coming from the u.s to say okay we are backing up this we are backing up this perspective so we can move forward so there's also that need of but in because he knows from that political, in that political perspective, he cannot gain much more for China. China doesn't get into pushing from international level to lobby for you that you know you have to postpone your election. But he knows that from the US perspective, he still can get that support to get that that uh, that that agenda out there from to the international community. So all those elements need to take in place.
0: I was reminded from my time living in the Congo that it actually might, in fact, be someone like Chesa who's behind or involved in the new narrative that's coming out. Because one of the tactics that I saw being used in the Congo was that stakeholders who wanted to pressure somebody would whip up a crowd. Yes. And all of a sudden there would be a crowd and then they would come in and provide the solution. You see that crowd outside? If they don't want you to burn down your house… I can solve the problem. When they were the ones who whipped up the crowd in the first place. Exactly. So it's entirely possible that Chessicati or his allies are playing both sides of this game. They are creating the problem, and they are also the solution. Exactly. Exactly that. Because you...
3: Those elements are really are really intertwined. They're all intertwined. They are not separate. They're all intertwined. They have to play from international perspective and local perspective. So I also agree with you when the, they say that maybe he's doing he's doing that for the good of his for the good the good of the Congolese people. It's just too early to say. It's just early to say. We haven't seen that. And when we analyze his governance, we are not, we are far from believing it's really out of you know the benevolence of Congolese people. We have to be careful when you tread when. We when we, when we when we analyze that but i don't believe that we are we are there yet
2: I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, about how this plays out in in the Congo's wider sub-region. You know, so so we saw in the past um during the, the Congolese Civil War that that many of its neighboring states ended up kind of being involved in, in different kind of commodities extraction within the Congo. Um and obviously also exporting from the Congo is a regional issue. You know, the the the, the fact that the that the East, East African Standard Gauge Railway dream fell apart a little bit or was at least kind of facing some Problems has direct bearing to the efficiency and you know and and the the, the kind of costliness of, of of exporting cobalt from the DRC and getting it to harbors. Um, so you know, kind of, what what is the role of neighboring states in in this current situation?
3: The neighboring state in this current situation are more into observing situation. are more into the observation stand, that looking at how it's going to play out, especially a country like Zambia, when we have the new president in place, you also want to see how things are playing out in that region, because when you see Chinese being pushed out in Congo, being pushed around, it, it, it may give him some idea about how he can play his card with the Chinese too, because he also have a date released release to negotiate with China. So we have all those elements that we have to take into a place. But from now on, the big narrative happening in the Katanga region, it's really hard to see an, original, an active regional influence on how things are playing out. If we were talking about the east Coast, the east part of Congo, we can mention the, what we call the usual suspect, Rwanda, Uganda and everything but when you come to Katanga, it's really hard to say now what's the influence and what's the role those countries are actively or passively playing in the region right now, in the situation right now. So it's still it's an unfolding situation, we're going to have to see how they're going to play out, how, how they're going to Play about it. We know that in terms of uh, in terms of uh, supply chain, we know that Congo is really wanting now to think about other supply route except South Africa to see how they can they can export through uh, Mombasa or Dar es Salaam because situation the supply chain can not not they don't want that to be disturbed with, with what may happen in South Africa in Durban situation. But on the overall, it's too early to say the role that the region can is playing
0: in in the current situation. Christian Jérôme Nima-Biango is a Congolese mining analyst and also author of the excellent blog Congo Entre Deux. It's Congo Between Two, which is the rough translation, and then it's in both English and in in French, so I highly recommend it. I'll put links in the show notes. Uh, Christian, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, you are an invaluable resource in tracking the minute-to-minute of everything that's going on in this debate. If people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you?
3: They can find me at Twitter on Christian Gero. So it's straightforward, Christian Gero Christians, Christian and Gero G-E-R-A-U-D. It's one word and uh, you're going to have all info I tweet about everything, mainly about Congolese politics. And recently I'm getting into more Congolese mining industry. So I'm going to give more details about how things are unfolding because it's a really interesting situation. So people are welcome to follow me and to have more details about
0: it. It is a fascinating situation. Thank you so much for that. We're going to put your link to your blog and also your Twitter handle in the show notes so everybody can follow it. I highly recommend following Christian's uh, Twitter feed there. It's fascinating. Thank you so much, Christian, for taking the time and to help us sort out, as I started at the, of, at the beginning of the show, what the hell is going on? And you did an excellent job of doing that, so we really appreciate it. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Kobis for having me. Kobis I warned in the newsletter today that trying to observe these uh, these issues from afar is again as i mentioned at the top of the show a fool's errand you'll you'll never understand the matrix that goes on in congolese politics the complexity just because of the sheer size of the country makes it different than other countries politics of course all politics in every country is complicated but congolese politics are next level and i think we're seeing that play out we just don't know who's who and what's what? What's the role of the United States? What's the role of Chesecati? What's the role of the, the Katanga governor, South Kivu governor, all these different actors, the ministers? This, the, it, it, there's so much going on. And social media is a big part of this. And if you're not following the details and the minutia of this, you're just not getting it because so much is happening so fast. But to me, it is the most important and most interesting relationship that China has today in Africa. Uh, In fact, there was another interesting data point that I didn't mention at the top of the show is that Ambassador Zhu Jing mentioned earlier this year that uh, Congo is the number one source for foreign direct investment. So in addition for the cobalt that is so important, they're also shifting some of their copper mining there. And China Mali is going to be investing $2.5 billion in its TFM mine to build copper, uh, to expand its copper output there, which leads me to think that an expanded copper output out of the DRC would enable Chinese mining companies in places like Zambia to turn the screws and to put more pressure on the Hishilema administration, that they just don't need Zambia as much as they did simply because the new mining center is going to be the Congo. So, so many dynamics at play here.
2: You know, uh, it it strikes me, you know, I agree with you. The Congo is incredibly important and it's incredibly important within Africa. I mean, it's so huge. I mean, it's the size of Western Europe. Excuse me. So, um, you know, so it's just it, it just affects everything that happens in Africa. But at the same time, it's also this kind of site of, it's like kind of a European original sin kind of, kind of area, you know, kind of like the, the, the European colonialism was rough and horrible in, everywhere in Africa, but somehow even worse in, in the DRC, you know. Um, you know so, so it is this, kind of, this is this kind of, it has this historical weight. And with it, I think also, it, it, it's now turning, I think, into a kind of a referendum on what the Global South can expect from extractives, um, because if it's if it can't if if the DRC can't make money out of cobalt at this moment of of you know kind of of. like a complete climate crisis and breakdown where we need to replace all of our, all of our kind of hardware and particularly our kind of car and transportation hardware with stuff that, that carry batteries that carry minerals from the Congo. If it's impossible for, for a global South country to actually get itself to some form of middle class level, some form of prosperity you know on on the way, if, if it's impossible for them to, to to achieve that on the back of extractives then it's impossible for global south to, to achieve it on extra, on the back of extractives you know so so it's like if 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 this doesn't work for the global south in this particular moment of crisis where the supply chains and and everything is, is is so constrained that that those prices are sky high, then extractives has to be completely reevalued as a way for as as, as 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 a as a form of economic or development model for global South countries. I think.
0: But isn't that pretty much already established? I mean, there's a whole development theory called the oil curse, which kind of says that the more natural resources a country has, the more screwed it is. And that the countries oftentimes that have the fewest natural resources tend to do the best because they develop other parts of their economy.
2: I have one word for you, Norway. It's not true for all resource-rich countries. It's true for specific resource-rich countries. And and that's exactly what I mean, is that there is a kind of a, there is this kind of logic where, you know, where a kind of a... Particularly in Africa, where where uh, the, the you know if you don't have resources, are you cursed by that by that fact? If you do have resources, you also happen, happen to be cursed by that fact. You know, it's a, the, 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 there's a way that resources are used against countries in the global south. That that if the which which again you know kind of like I mean this this has been said many times. You know, kind of this is this is not a new thing to say. But uh, again, like it be, the DRC becomes a kind of a test case. Of this, right? Um, where if, if in this particular, if in in this particular set of historical circumstances, if you know, if it's if it's not possible for a country to to actually achieve like like real kind of benefits from these resources, then it might not be possible for them to achieve for for the global south to achieve it. Um, you know that, that 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 I think it's it, it, it's it's such a kind of I think it's a kind of a world historical kind of test case in a way.
0: Well, in many ways, the DRC is unique because of its supply of cobalt. And cobalt is in some ways a unique resource. Again, we talked about how 60 to 65 percent of the world's cobalt reserves are in the DRC. The Chinese you know control the lion's share of that up and down the supply chain, by the way, in the DRC. More importantly, though, is that they control 80% of the processed cobalt output. And that's what goes into the batteries that power these electric cars. That is a point of concern for many governments in not only the U.S. and Europe, but also in Korea and Japan, other big automaking countries as well, that they are dependent on China for this cobalt, which is another reason why they want to try and develop alternatives to cobalt, not just because of the instability in the DRC, but also because they don't like the fact that they have to depend on China for this strategic resource. So expect that change to happen. I guess I'm a little bit surprised... After all of the past two or three years of tumultuous U.S.-China narrative coming out of Washington, that here we have a case where the Chinese were clearly against the ropes and clearly on the ropes over the past few months, uh, coming under fierce attack on social media from all sorts of, of critics. And the United States, for the most part, has stayed quiet. We have not heard the United States government weigh in on this controversy. Again, there are all sorts of rumors that they are engaged in the back channels and they're whispering into Chessicati's ear, but certainly coming out of the State Department itself or out of the White House, we're not hearing much. And it just seems to me that's an unusual situation, given the fact that, the U.S. has really never missed an opportunity to pound the Chinese when they can, and this seems to be as good an opportunity as any.
2: Yeah, you know, it's, it, it'll be interesting to see how how it develops. It'd also be interesting to see whether other non-government um, actors emerge as kind of pro- proxy speakers, um, you know, for for the for the government. Um, and yeah, I think it's really important to 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 keep an eye on. Uh, however, I, I I do you know not to kind of pound my my the, the my old drum over and over again, but I do want to resist this kind of idea that that a, a story that is. About an African resource and the labor conditions in of its extraction and the amount of of kind of profit that that country can make somehow turns into a story about the u s or a story about Japan and its auto industry, or you know a story about all of these other external players, even about China. You know, when like the, like that can, that can't be allowed to happen. It has to, that, that story has to be pulled back to, to also at least partially reflect on, on the actual ecological and, and social, you know, kind of impacts in the Congo itself. As I said, it's easy to slap together a prefab building and call it a school, you know? It's like, is anyone doing kind of due diligence about whether there are actually teachers in those schools supposedly built by Chinese companies? If someone isn't, and if that, if that, you know and and as as we say we said right throughout like you know kind of a, a key problem here, key problematic actor here is the drc government itself you know and and it's it's kind of failures and it's corruptions and it's shadiness but at the same time it like it it, it, it makes me crazy to like open up the website of financial times or bloomberg or economists and and to see the entire drc congo story being discussed in terms of the us and china as if the congo isn't involved you know and particularly a country that has been so damaged by external forces throughout history you know um that you know where where you just, the the belgians alone you know kind of like the, the you know is you know they're they're a kind of a genocidal perpetrator nation never called that you know because it's always congolese problems Cong- you know so so uh the, the, it, 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 yeah the, you know kind of it, it it makes me crazy when 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 that kind of you know, the, uh, particularly a kind of a global South state of the size and importance of the DRC it ends up being weirdly excluded out of its own story.
0: Well, to that point, one of the very interesting aspects of this story is the role of... Congolese civil society organizations. So that protest in Kitutu I talked about in South Kivu was organized by an environmental CSO. Also, the journalism that's been coming out of Kinshasa and the Alain Foucault Fouquet, uh, documentary, so independent journalism, is also playing a part in all of this. So I think civil society, independent civil society in uh, the DRC is another actor in all of this. Those are the kinds of things that we've been showcasing On our blog, and also on in our newsletter, and now in the podcast as well, we're looking to bring on some of these uh, civil society groups to talk to you on the podcast as well. Because to Cobus's point, uh, really having the agency of all of the different players in this discussion is so important. So, but it is one to Cobus to your point, though. I mean, it is. It does. It is an issue that does affect a lot of international actors, though. So you can't divorce it entirely from what goes on in Korea, Japan, China and and the U.S. I mean, that is a part of the story at the end of the day. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely a part of the story. But but at the
2: same time, you know, kind of the, the fact that it is a part of the story needs to then put to the position of the DRC in even more prominent position, you know, because there are all of these international actors involved. Um, you know, but but instead what we're seeing is that, is that it, it becomes about the
0: international actors. Okay, that's a fair point. Uh, let's keep the conversation there. There's obviously so much more to discuss. We didn't get into a lot of the aspects, but time is running out here. Uh, if you are interested in this story, there is really only one way to follow it, and that is by subscribing to the China Africa Project. We're consolidating every day all of the different points that are being made. So today, again, six, seven stories on on just different aspects of this. and Again, trying to amplify the civil society voice, the Chinese voice, and what's happening internationally on this story, go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe, and you can try it out free for 30 days, the subscription. You'll get full transcripts to this podcast. You'll get full access to our archives and thousands of stories that are archived and organized by keyword, country, and category. So it's a great research tool as well. So if you have any questions, you can email me directly, eric at chinaafricaproject.com or kobus, C O B U S at ChinaAfricaProject.com. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Kobas and I will be back again next week with another episode. Until then, thank you so much for
1: listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda. And you can find Koba's at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to ChinaAfricaProject.com.